Today is March 19th, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 82. Today on the show, we're talking about how mind control prosthetics work, we're backing up your brain to the cloud, and more. So hail a flying taxi cab, sit back and relax, because Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. You know what? I had a really great intro, but uh, so, so here's the story, guys. We recorded this the first time. It went off perfect without a hitch. And then I introduced Blake and his mic didn't go off. So then we had to do it again. It's okay. It only took us two times this time. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by my good friend and yours. Let's hope his mic is working this time, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Does it work? There it is. It He's there. Yes, we are all good to go now. Okay, we're professionals here. It's, it's all good. <laughs> well, Nick, how are you doing, man? What's going on? Oh, man, I'm good, Blake. Uh, I want to talk. So I see you have like a ton of things. So I'm just going to I'm, I'm going to say mine. So that way we can get to, into all of yours. Um, but man, I got to tell you, spoiler culture. We've talked about this on the show before, but I have such a really interesting thing that happened to me that uh, is kind of the opposite of what we've talked about spoiler culture before, right? So in the past, we said spoiler culture, you don't want to be ru- you don't want to ruin an experience by having a twist revealed to you, right? And, and there's all this sort of stigma about spoiling in, in public, right, for somebody. Um, yeah, yeah. But what if a spoiler could have the opposite reaction? What if you had a, a show or a, a piece of media was not even on your radar until you heard a spoiler from the thing that made you want to sit through the whole thing and watch it. Yeah, that would be super rare for me. I want to know what it was you got spoiled that you ended up watching. The Good Place. The Good Place. The Good Place. So, so, it, you fa- so you found out what happens in the end, and you were like, I have to see how this all progresses? Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. Now, uh, listeners, I'm not going to spoil The Good Place for you. Um, but if, you, if you're curious, send me a direct message in our Slack, and I will send you what the spoiler is that made me want to watch this entire thing. And boy, am I glad I did it. Okay, so again, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, come and find me if you want the spoiler. So I was listening to uh, Tested's podcast with Adam Savage, and they were talking about The Good Place, and they revealed the spoiler that happens at the end of season one. And I was sitting there going, huh, that's interesting. Okay, and if you're not familiar, um, the premise of The Good Place is that these people are, are sent, There's it's like the afterlife, right? They're sent to these the good place and the bad place and the all that stuff, right? It's heaven and hell, right? Metaphorically, it stars Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. And um, fun fun fact, I have been within 50 feet of Kristen Bell on the set of Veronica Mars. Huh. There you go. Who knew? Uh, but yeah, so so the, the, the premise is that uh, Kristen Bell uh, goes to the good place and she is not a good person and she's trying to figure out why she got sent to the good place. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. It's a great show. Great show. Fantastic show. And I wouldn't have searched it out unless I knew about the spoiler. And like, let me just lay it out for you, Blake. I heard this last week, right after the podcast, uh, that we record and, and 
like all last week I binged season one and I'm one episode away from from finishing season two because it was that good. Okay, well, you're like the second person to tell me about The Good Place. And if, if you're giving it that good of a recommendation, knowing the end of season one or the spoiler or the twist, then I definitely want to watch it. So I'll have to check it out. Maybe maybe you can message me and I can tell you. I, I don't know. If if you're intrinsically motivated to go watch it, then do it. Um, I turned a couple people onto it last week and they've been enjoying it thoroughly. Like it is a good, sh- it is a really good show. It's written by some of the same people that did like the office parks and rec. Um, it kind of really? has, yeah, it, 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 Michael Schur. So uh, if you're familiar okay, with yeah, yeah, the yeah. office, it's, it's, uh, it's Moe's. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's got like this really campy kind of humor to it, but it's really funny. It's, it's a really funny show. Highly recommend. Uh, so there's my shout out for the day, but <laughs> Blake, I got to ask you, what's going on with you, man? You got a, you got a couple things here for banter. Yeah, so I've been playing around with a bunch of different ways of recording my podcast. Uh, and one that somebody recommended to me was using the Anchor app. And I just have to say, like, if if anybody is out there and they, they like, think they want to start a podcast or they don't, really, they don't really know what it's like or have any of the equipment, and first off, I'm not sponsored by anybody. Uh, but this was like a whim thing, but it makes putting together like your intro, your story and your outro. The simple as like clicks of buttons It is the easiest app I've ever used for podcasting. Uh, Cause I've, I've been trying to make sure like every time I want to do something or put out content that's rela- that is like podcast form, that I just do it as quickly as I can. Cause I often forget. So if anybody else is out there looking to try something, it's just a good way to go. Really quick here, Blake, while you're, while you're talking about your podcast, why don't you go ahead and plug it? Because you're a central part of this show, and if people like you and your personality, I think it's fair game for them to search you out and and, and uh, get a taste of what this podcast is all about. Oh, sure. It, it, I do a podcast on Friday. It's called the UX Rant, and it's just it's sent around user experience, things that happen in design or research during the week. It's just a way to blow off some steam from a long week of working. All right. Yeah, go check Blake out. What platforms is that available on? Uh, it's on SoundCloud, and it should be on iTunes at the end of the week. Perfect. Well, go yeah. check out Blake at the UX Rant Podcast. You got a couple other things here. I want. What is streaming zombies? What is that? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I've been trying to stream more games because I just haven't had time to play any, and it's just one of the things I wanted to try and knock off in 2018, be more consistent with streaming games. Um, but, you know, it was funny. I got, so, I got stuck trying to stream a specific game and couldn't actually do it. Um, but thanks to the nice UI that's built into Xbox, I was able to figure out how to live stream from just only using the Xbox because my laptop was giving me so much trouble, and it's something I had never tried before. Uh, have you you use PS4, right, Nick? I do. Quick quick note on the UI: I posted something in our Slack earlier this week that was called "crappy user interface design," oh uh, and it was it was a video by this guy who does uh, who covers video games. And he kind of has that uh, sarcastic bluntness about bad UIs and, and interface. And, like, he breaks it down. It's hysterical. I, I strongly recommend anyone to go check that out. I just I had to share it with everybody. Uh, but, yeah, I use the PlayStation 4. Uh, it's it's pretty easy to stream. Uh, just a couple clicks and you're in. And it, it once you've hooked it up to your YouTube or Twitch or whatever, it just goes. Yeah, and I think that what Xbox did is they copied the PlayStation model. Because do you have some built-in you know, app service that you can use to actually stream from. So it's built in right into the UI, right? You just, you literally press the, like I have it set up so where I can double tap the share button or whatever, and it'll start streaming. 
Yeah. So is that they've broadcasting. finally done the exact same thing to follow up on that. So just it was it was cool that I again like thought I wasn't gonna be able to do something similar to using the anchor app, right? Like just trying to do stuff on the fly. Uh, but was able to pull it off and was really easy to set up and use. So again, if you're looking to stream on your on Xbox, just check out some of the streaming tips from just straight up on your Xbox. But Nick, the only other thing I really want to talk about is you and I got started beefing about what's going on with Annihilation. <laughs> did you see it this weekend? I did not see it this weekend. I saw it two weekends ago. I, oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So, so okay. Before we started the show, I was like, oh, you put Annihilation on here. I'm curious to get your thoughts. And you said? I hated it. <laughs> and I yeah, said, oh, man, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to get into the show to talk about this, which is why I nailed the intro twice. All right. So, so break it down. Why did you not like Annihilation? Uh, well, let's just break it down. This is this is uh, this isn't human factors. Who cares? It's a little pop culture-y and and you know we can we can uh, we're personalities now, right? We can talk about this. I think we've earned it. All right, Blake. It what is the, it is the brief banter section yes. that keeps getting longer, right? right? But uh, okay. So my real only gripe with it, and to keep in line with Nick's talk about spoiler culture, I'm not gonna really give away anything at all. But if if you're a fan of the Southern Reach trilogy book series and you went and saw Annihilation, you're probably confused about why lots of major plot points were not the same at all. Like they didn't line up to what was going on in the story. There was some strangeness in how they portrayed some of the characters. Um, and then there just seemed like so, a lot of odd additions with some of the some of the creatures they they added versus the ones they didn't show. Uh, so it just it felt really inconsistent to me. And it was one of these times that I wished that actually my girlfriend, Elise hadn't read the book or I had gone with somebody who hadn't read it so that I wouldn't have had as biased of an experience. Well, good news is that I did not read the book. And so maybe, maybe that's why I enjoyed, uh, 80% of the movie. Um, I, I will say the, the last 20 minutes or so were a little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It just it didn't live up to the rest of the movie for me, but I thought the rest of the movie, the the eighty percent that came before that, was doing a fantastic job of world building. It does a fantastic job of establishing the rules of this environment, and it stuck to those rules, right? Like there was no time where it deviated. It set those rules up, and and if you go back and and sort of think about the things that were happening early on in the film, everything followed those rules, and that is very important to me because when a movie breaks those the rules that it itself set up, that's when I I can't suspend disbelief, right? And so it it to me, uh, it. it it was a very strong storytelling, very strong world building. Now, of course, I have my own gripes with it, but but I'm I'm curious as to like what aspects. Uh, like, you already kind of mentioned that some of the story beats weren't the same, um, and you you're comparing to the book, right? And and I'm yeah. sure you know we'll have this conversation again in a month when um, when after I've seen Ready Player One, you know, like I'm sure reading the book yeah. and then seeing the thing on film is going to be a complete different thing and i'm but yeah so i don't know i i enjoyed it like i said up until that last 20 minutes but it was because of the world building and it was because of the rules they followed i mean the cinematography and sound design were amazing in it and i I also had that expectation going into it that they were going to be great but the the story and the world building to me just was not as good or consistent as what i had read in the series of books so it just it didn't match up to my preconceived expectations, right? Only because I had read it. And so that 
I'm glad that you enjoyed it more for the storyline and its world building because there was just there was so much that was missing that was pivotal to the actual storyline when you look at the book versus what they actually put in the film and then they mixed up a couple of things. But anyway, I mean, it's a uh, it's kind of funny to contrast how somebody who didn't read it enjoyed it versus like somebody who did. And I've never been one of those people that actually like for Ready Player One, I won't have read the book when it comes out, and so I'll probably go see it without reading the book. So, so uh, this conversation will be completely flip flopped. I'll be like, "Oh man, they left so many good things out of the book," and uh, likely, I, I mean, to be fair, I was pretty lukewarm on the bill on on the book, uh, but you know, we that's another conversation. Do we want to get into some of these uh, events and plug these? Yeah, uh, so I just want to plug real quick. Next week, I will be at the Human Factors Healthcare Symposium. So that's March 26th to the 28th in Boston. So if you guys are around or if there's something you want to see, please let me know in Slack. And I am happy to either meet up with you and hang out at the conference if you're there or uh, try and attend sessions for you. Yeah, in addition to that, we're going to try to do some uh, live streams or or at least some some bonus episodes for you guys. uh, So that way you guys can kind of get that conference experience without actually going to the conference. Not that you shouldn't go. You should absolutely go. But we adopt a no human factors practitioner left behind model here where we want to make sure we send people out and, and are reporting on these important conferences that, you know, has have this information that you want to know, right? Uh but I mean, still go for the networking. That's that's the bottom line. Um, in addition to that, uh, next month, about about a month from when Blake's going to this healthcare symposium, uh, we have uh, Woodrow is going up to the Kai conference in Montreal, computer human interaction, and uh, that's from the twenty third to the twenty sixth. Again, reach out to him in Slack if you're if you have any specifics. And uh, HFES Australia is coming to Perth, twenty sixth through twenty eighth in November, and we have actual hfes not that sounds that's <laughs> that sounds really bad no we have we have hfes international sorry hfes international here in philly uh and that is at the end of september uh and i just got the okay to go to that we're we're working on blake to get to go to that we hoping to be there live and to do a couple actual live shows from the hotel lobby so you guys can come meet up with us while we're actually doing the show so why don't you say we get into the news? What do you think? Let's do it. All right. So this is the part of the show all about human factors news. It's where we break down everything related to the field of human factors. This could be medical, transportation, psychology, autonomy, whatever it is. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? All right. So since October, mysterious flying objects have been moving and seen around the skies of southern or the South Island of New Zealand. And what they look like is a cross between a plane and a small drone with a series of small rotor blades along each wing that allow it to take off like a helicopter and then fly like a plane. And to those on the ground, it always has been unclear whether there's a pilot on board. Well, as it actually turns out, the airborne vehicle has been part of a series of stealth flight tests by a personally financed personally by Larry Page, a.k.a. the co-founder of Google. The company known as Kitty Hawk has been testing a new kind of fully electric, self-piloted flying taxis. And imagine starting a network of autonomous air taxis as Uber is planning to, but long before Uber can actually do it in the States. And that's exactly what Mr. Page and Kitty Hawk are trying to do. Nick, I was really surprised that it was actually somebody who had started Google that was 
I guess, competing in New Zealand with the likes of Uber, like trying to do flight tests out there. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, why they're doing it in New Zealand, I'm not sure. Uh, probably because of laws and legislation regarding testing of these things, right? Um, yeah, because it seemed like it was a lot simpler in New Zealand, or at least they had some sort of deal that made it easier for them to one test, but also then get them commercially flying. Right. Yeah. No. This is this is pretty cool that we have some working stuff. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I I can't remember. Was it last year that I had on my predictions that we'd see some of these first tests? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I like. It just blows my mind that, you know, someday soon we'll be able to jump into a uh, personal helicopter that'll take us from from point A to point B. Yeah, the design of this thing is really intense. Like, the way they describe it is perfect. I mean, it does look like a very small airplane slash drone with a bunch of, like, rotocopter blades on the wings. Uh, But the, the thing that I was curious about is for these test flights... I mean, I wonder if they were picking up people or not, because there's not a whole lot of, of course, it's a stealth test, right? And I'm sure it's more about testing the autonomous vehicle than anything else. But I wonder if they're going to start just doing like, uh, you know, kind of beta taxi runs for this as well. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so to describe the design of this thing, you you already kind of hinted at it. But yeah, it is, it, it's a VTOL vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft and it looks like a normal aircraft just has uh, like drone propellers on its wings that provide the vertical takeoff and landing lift um, now what this means for the future I have no idea but they're saying that they uh, have the ambitious target of being net carbon zero by 2050 so they obviously have some stretch goals in place to make this happen and I didn't see anything about when they plan to make this available to the public or when they started when they're um, planning on on making uh, uh, human humans being able to ride this thing. Wow. Words are hard today. <laughs> well, actually, it looks like based on some of the laws in New Zealand about getting commercial flights like this going, they're hoping to do this within as little as three years, like having a network of these flying taxis in New Zealand. Um which it, which is really really awesome to hear because I mean the the bigger part part of the article talks about the big challenges in the U.S. with the FAA trying to figure out how one you can test vehicles, but then the second part of that is once you test them, how do you go about certifying so they can fly commercially? Uh, and right now, the in the United States, we really don't have that kind of golden path that you can take. Uh, so you've got companies like Uber and Airbus that are trying to at least get testing done, but there's really no nothing past that. So I think maybe it'll help by seeing this happen in New Zealand quicker over time with seeing how testing goes and how actually deployment goes. Maybe that'll help the FAA and the U.S. kind of catch up or have a good idea of what's a good way forward. But again, we do have some of the most you know heavily air trafficked air traffic density skies plus we have one of the lowest rates of you know error when it comes to air traffic so i mean there's a there's a lot to kind of you know run through when it comes to getting these things in the air for sure for sure and it's important to note that you know new zealand isn't the first country to have this happen i mean we've seen uh tests in dubai uh i think even earlier this year or late last year where they are actually trying these these same types of um uh, what what are these like small aircraft uh, that are intended intended for uh, personal use or 
for these ride sharing purposes uh, being tested in Dubai. And so, so the more, <clears throat> to me, the more places that try this out, the, the better, because then we have more data and we can then say, hey, look, it worked over here. These are the laws that were in place there. Let's, let's maybe try it out here. Definitely. I, th- I think one of the biggest hurdles is going to be trying to make people feel like it's a safe thing to do. Because I, I feel I feel like uh, as Uber's kind of grown and Lyft's kind of grown within the states, as that becomes more automated, I mean, there was a there was a time period where people had to get used to the idea of just hailing a ride from an app for somebody you don't know that wasn't necessarily like licensed as a professional um, for taxis or being like in a taxi service. But this this now takes it to a whole nother realm. Like, how do you make people comfortable, not just with like uh, autonomous cars, but autonomous, you know, flight vehicles as well? So I, th- I think that's going to be a giant hurdle once once we get past the the testing and getting into the like commercialization of these kinds of vehicles. You know what? And it's funny that you bring that stuff up because uh, the trust in these services like Uber and Lyft and even trust in autonomous vehicles, I feel like has made a lot of really big strides in the last couple of years. And I think our next story may unfortunately set autonomy back a little bit. So let's get into it. Yeah, especially in the U.S. I definitely think you're right. So Uber Technologies has had to halt their autonomous vehicle test after one crash. One of its cars crashed and struck and killed a woman in Tampa, Arizona, in what was likely the first pedestrian fatality involving this kind of autonomous technology. So the woman was crossing the road outside of a crosswalk when the Uber Uber vehicle operating in autonomous mode under the supervision of a safety human driver struck her, according to the Tempe Police Department. Companies like Alphabet Incorporated, General Motors, Uber and Bandu, Baidu, are investing billions of dollars to develop autonomous vehicle technology because it has the potential to transform the auto industry and transportation in general and the way that cities work throughout the world. But one analyst estimated that until one analyst has estimated that Alphabet's Whammo unit is worth at least $70 billion. So the fatality in Tempe could slow the testing and delay commercialization and undermine such optimism. And I, Nick, I think you're right. I mean, when you see something like this that results in a fatality, um, especially when we're talking about a pedestrian now, because we've we've talked about a fatality before related to a crash where Tesla's like, autopilot. Uh, Tesla was involved, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't so much on the automation side, right? Uh, it was it was like a we, there was determined fault. Um, but I, I really think this will set things very far back. But at the same time, uh, I don't really know the best pc way to say this i mean these kind of tests have to be run because you don't want these things to keep happening um and this obviously reveals a giant flaw in one depending on like how an operator gets back in the loop here because there was like a, a human safety driver there that's obviously a problem and as well as if this it mentions in the article and again this is one article one point of view that the pedestrian was walking outside of the crosswalk well that means then potentially the vehicle couldn't spot her because it didn't have the right you know algorithm or didn't have the right things to be using its cameras for or trying to look out for maybe it's only looking for road map markings yeah and i i mean it's oh god i i uh yeah so the uh I just looked at the name. 
of the person that was struck, which is good because I saw the 49 year old woman, uh, and <clears throat> it's in Tempe, Arizona. And my partner's mother lives in around that area. So I was like, Oh no. Uh, but uh, I mean, it is a really unfortunate consequence of having to test this technology. Right. But I mean, part of the problem is too, that this is a really important case study for complacency behind the wheel especially in these autonomous systems, because like the article points out, there was a safety driver inside and the safety driver missed this. The safety driver was probably on their phone and not being in the, I, I, I don't want to like call this person out um, or anything, but I, I can imagine where it wouldn't be difficult to imagine a world where the, the, the driver was on their phone, distracted from what's going on around them, and they couldn't intervene soon enough because they weren't in the loop with what was happening. And Or, I mean, we can, legitimate, we can legitimize them in some regard here. I mean, potentially they have to do tasks while they're in the car that require them to either, you know, interact with a tablet or make specific, you know, markers while they're driving. So that could have been inhibiting it, too. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, I mean, it will be really interesting how this all shapes out. Like, what was the driver doing to the, to the point where they weren't uh, able to intervene quick enough? Was it just... Was it just the, you know, they didn't notice in, until it was too late? Well, what were they doing leading up until that point? What are the kind of factors that would sort of improve this later down the line, right? And and we have companies like Google who want to go fully autonomous, no sort of controls within the vehicle to where the 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 driver couldn't even save this person if they wanted to, even if they saw them coming. Um, so I, it just raises a bunch of really serious issues that come with automation. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I, I, I feel like this is going to do a lot of damage for trust in automation, right? That's a big topic in human factors right now is how do we get not only operators, but people interacting with autonomous systems being pedestrians on the street, trusting autonomous vehicles, Right. I mean, I'd be really curious to 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 see what this I, I know this sounds really morbid, but like to see what the, the last seconds of this person's life were thinking like, oh, this person sees me. It's fine. I can just cross here. Or were they on their phone looking down and not paying attention because they thought the automated system was not going to run them over? Or, you know, like I just if there's a lot of issues that we can break down about this and and dive into and i'm absolutely positive that we will have like 10 different follow-up stories of this over the next couple months where we will find out more information about what happened we'll find out exactly uh what in the algorithm determined that the pedestrian wasn't in fact an object that the car needed to avoid we'll find out what the pedestrian was doing at the time we'll find out what the operator of the vehicle was doing at the time we'll find out all these details and that will inform not only the uh the automation going forward, but also potentially laws and regulation around this type of thing. Yeah. I mean, all of us are really great points, Nick. And the legislation thing is something I've hit on for the last couple of years. And it's just, 
I don't even know how they're going to handle this because this was in testing phase. So that's just a, a whole nother can of worms to open. And you make a really interesting point about what if, and this is all what if I have, this is very much speculation, but it's a great point that Nick brings up. I mean, if you typically, when you cross the street, if there's a car coming, you make like eye contact with the car or whoever's driving. And if you did look up and see that somebody was in the car, and especially if they were in the driver's seat, but even if you just glanced up, saw somebody in the car, you may assume that, oh, okay, I could walk across the street. They have to be able to see me. Well, what, what are we going to do about that mental model now? Because now, even if you looked up and there was somebody in the front seat, say they just weren't driving, but you saw a person, how do you know that it's it's safe to cross the street? Is it, How do you determine if it's an autonomous vehicle? And then the, I guess my last point is this is, this is super unfortunate for of course, the fatality reasons, but the, when this stuff happens, when it happens in aviation, when it happens in you know nautical vehicles, this is just like you see grand steps being taken forward in autonomous vehicles. But this is going to send it back very far in the way that people are going to accept it or trust it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would if I could, I would nominate this person to be one of the first people to try out this uh, this next article that we're going to talk about because this thing is insane i want to jump into this i i hate to just leave that one there but i want to jump into this next story because this has huge implications and a lot of ethical implications as well a lot of weird implications from this one but all right so the well-known startup accelerator y combinator is known for supporting audacious companies in its popular three-month boot camp but nectome is truly one of a kind. So Nectome's technology allows for you to back up your mind using a high-tech embalming process. The idea being that someday in the future, scientists will scan your preserved brain and turn it into a computer simulation. That way, someone a lot like you, though not exactly you, will smell the flowers again in a data server somewhere. And there's a slightly high cost for using Nectome service, and that is that you're brain actually has to be fresh meaning as the founder put it the product is a hundred percent fatal for all humans so nick and i had (laughs) funny enough like we he had posted it one in the general thread to talk about it and i had posted this in the random one because when i saw the picture of the brain and that it was from y combinator i had to take a look and i'm so glad we're talking about this because it's it's somewhere between sci-fi and what in the world is going on uh, because yeah. there, there is some kind of implication for what this kind of technology will do in the next, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I don't I have no idea. Yeah. So the implication is obviously that we are, as a society, getting more and more comfortable with being, quote unquote, immortal. Uh, and the the this is one step closer to that right now i think we actually had a discussion about this in our in our public facing slack where we were you know like i well, i don't know how i feel about this it's not really me because it's a simulation of me rather than it's a copy it's not um you know it's not me it's not my brain right but i was saying that if they could hook up electrodes into my existing brain and then uh, somehow power that, and I was hooked into a data server somewhere, uh, manipulating my actual brain with that. Then it's then it's me, right? But but this copy is not. And so, for uh, someone, I, I I forget. I need to I need to pull this up. I'm pulling this up right now, but I because I, I want to attribute 
correctly because there's a lot of conversation about this this will be a good good time to uh plug our slack our our link is in the show notes uh it's on our website on our twitter pretty much anywhere you can find us you can find our slack i'm loading this guy up right now but yeah this has a lot of implications for like how are we gonna how are we as a society going to preserve ourselves going forward in the future and i don't know blake what what do you what do you think about this this is this is like too much metaphysics for me to even handle because uh when i was in grad school i had a particular psychology professor that was very much into philosophy and he used to always bring up the problem or the the like thought experiment that what if you're nothing but a brain in a in a vat that somebody is giving electrical signals to well i mean at, at the end of the day you're almost paying to be that whether you are one right now or not and i just thought that that was kind of insane but at the same time the the tie-in that they bring in of this being the next kind of like physician assisted suicide type of thing is is very interesting to me because what if you if if you're in your last dying days where your brain is still quote unquote fresh and that's a decision you make what if down the line who knows how long they can create some kind of simulation where you are able to resume existence but it like they say it's not necessarily you and there's a lot there's a lot of biological you know problems that come up here like can you can you actually find the memories within the brain tissues i mean that's a that's a valid point they bring up in the article but i think it's I think it's a sign of where things will go by the time that I'm an old man. And that'll be something like my kids are dealing with is how do I want to live my life? Do I want to live it as a brain in a simulation where I am always immortal or do I want to live this flesh life? Um, it, I don't know. It's uh, it's really intense to me. It really is. So provided a choice, uh, cremation, buried, or this, I would choose this. Uh, if the cost wasn't so high, if the cost was not literally, I'm choosing to end my life right now to preserve my brain for later. Um, plus $10,000. Plus $10,000. I mean, that's, just throw I, that out there. I mean, compared to the cost of a life, that's, that's whatever. But so like, <clears throat> I, <laughs> I'm really struggling with this, man. Like I, uh, so, so Mateo brought this thing up, you know, that it's, it's, uh, it's more of a, it's recreating a mind, um, it's not useful for the physical person, right? It's 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 more of a uh, saving people's knowledge, uh, but he's he's arguing that we need to actually save the people attached to that knowledge, right? So, like, uh, we just saw the passing of Stephen Hawking this last week. If he were to elect for this service, his mind would be preserved. His a simulation would effectively be able to, with the promise of this type of technology, the the technology would be able to effectively be him, and he could still be a philosopher. He could still be a scientist, and and um, contribute to literature and and be a very uh, influential voice. But it would be a copy of him it wouldn't be him and that is the part that i'm grappling with right so like and it might be vain it's very vain in fact i i would love to live forever and but like the the idea of a copy of me being around um if it provides some sort of comfort to 
uh, the my loved ones after I've passed, you know, like they can come and talk to the simulation of me. And if that's like a good coping me- coping me- mechanism, I think that's one thing. But I mean, for me personally, my my selfishness is like, well, you are died. You die, and another copy is created, right? And then, uh, yeah. So Brian in Brian in our Slack, he goes, <laughs> "This seems like an okay retirement plan <laughs> once this meat sack is officially useless." <laughs> so, hundred <laughs> percent agree. There you go. Um, but he also brings up the interesting point of uploading seems more like having a kid than being immortal. Uh, he says, sure, it'll be like you, but it's not you. And we're having this philosophical debate in our Slack. You can feel free to come and join us about this stuff. But I I both love and hate this story because it is it, it forces us to think about what it truly means to upload our mind into a digital environment. I think it when you bring up Stephen Hawking, I think that even makes it more complicated, right? Because he was, he's a perfect example of just a brilliant mind that's impacted the world so much when it comes to science, philosophy, just lots of different things, especially when we think about space and time and what, I mean, this, there's a lot of what ifs in here, but this is very, very out there. But if, if you're able to preserve somebody's thoughts and, uh, especially somebody with such intense intellect like Stephen Hawking and keep that around and keep that moving. I think, it, I think it could only end up benefiting people. And when we're now we're talking about like brains that are hooked up to a server. And that just, again, reminds me of the beginning of kind of like a collective consciousness where you could potentially plug into it and start pulling things out. Or if, uh, if there was ever, ever a time where you needed to, you know, look into somebody's mind that had previously been alive and use some of their their intellect to help you out or help out some situation in the world. Who knows? My brain just exploded with the thought of having Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan and Albert Einstein all in the same, like, digital environment, right? It's not them, but their brains are are modeled and simulated. And so then these simulations can then talk to each other and they can make potentially some of the greatest papers of all time and it's these simulations of these wonderful minds that have graced our presence for such a short period of time on earth but their sort of uh their legend their their um being immortal sort of i I, can we attribute a paper a scientific paper to these models and simulations of these wonderful minds like i it's blowing my mind right now thinking about all this through because they can talk to each other a million miles a minute in in a virtual environment in a, in a in a simulated environment. They can run all these tests that they have going on in their head. They have access to millions of data points, databases online. And then I'm now convinced that this company is starting the uh, AI revolution because that in effect is a representation of artificial intelligence. Is it not? Yeah, I I don't know because the, they make the distinct point that this is not exactly you. And so does that mean that it ha- and again like I'll bring up the fact that we don't know that memories live in brain tissue and that you could stimulate them. So does this does this mean if I kind of embalm my brain, they put it in a simulation, is it actually able to 
access my thoughts or is it accessing some version that's now a simulation that's completely different from me that is using similar thought patterns that I used to have? I don't know. I, I couldn't even tell you. But the biggest, I think, impact this is going to have, for, especially because there's people that are already on wait lists to do this, is it's going to open up and really let people see a lot more about what is going on in the brain. Yeah, and that's ultimately for people like us, psychologists, who are interested in this type of thing, how we work, it's going to be really good. Um, but, I mean, you know, we have to sacrifice a few people down uh, on along the way. But, I mean, if they're signing up for it, then, then they're effectively contributing to science. So Most definitely. <laughs> all right. But, but before we move on, I just want to thank all of our friends over at Technology Review, New York Times, Wired, Bloomberg, and Newsweek. If you guys want to follow along, you can follow us all over social media for links to these original articles. And we even post some uh, exclusives in our Slack. So be sure to do that. All right, Blake, let's get into our next and last story of the week. Oh, this is so cool. All right. So prosthetics have come a long way over the last decade, increasing the amount of control through the wearer's thoughts. But today, even the most sophisticated prosthetics have no kinesthetic feedback or proprioceptive feedback. So meaning the only way to know where your prosthesis is at any time is to actually look at it or watch it. However, the Cleveland Clinic of Medical Center is testing a new prosthetic bionic hand with thermoplastic with a thermoplastic prosthetic sprocket. Wow, that's hard. That uses nerves that once command once commanded a person's hand and forearm now innervate to their biceps and tricep muscles. So the socket literally relays electrical signals from those muscles to a computerized motor-driven hand, which can be operated again by the wearer's mind. So Nick, you and I have talked a bunch on the show about the the leaps and bounds that a prosthetics are making. I mean, a lot of it's centered around the idea that you can control them with your mind, which still just blows me away that that's even a possibility. I just don't, sometimes I don't even understand how that is a reality that we live in. But this is now kind of building upon that and trying to make sure that people can now almost function their bionic parts similar to the way, similar to the way they would just use their hand or anything like that. It's more of getting feedback to the, to the existing nerves that you have so that you know where your arm or limb exists in space without actually having to look at it. Yeah, so this week on Philosophy Factors cast, uh, we are going to talk about sort of, well, what if you had access to this and the technology was better down the line. Uh, this ties in with our last story. I mean, like, if we could preserve a brain in a prosthetic body to where you could still move and feel everything and, like, just a brain transplant from, like, the Altered Carbon series on Netflix. I haven't watched any of that, but uh, I hear it's not that great. But, you know, th- that same concept is, 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 is promising, right? And... <clears throat> I'm wondering when we're going to, and this is a philosophical, a philosophical question. So don't, don't think that I'm like advocating for this in any way, shape, or form. But what happens when those prosthetics become better than what we're born with and equipped with at birth? Do we then opt for these prosthetics at birth? Are we then like, do we just change them out like parts? Do we keep the base? Do we keep the base, but then augment the arms and legs with? additional things or do we even replace like the heart 
for something that can beat more regularly, something that can handle uh, more extreme conditions. Like that's that's my question is when I mean, it's wonderful for the people who have unfortunately lost their limbs in accidents or or defects uh, caused from a variety of different reasons. Right. It's, it's a wonderful thing that we're, we're solving those problems. But I can't I, I can imagine a world where we are we're looking at this technology and we're going, hey, that's better than what I have. And when are we going to cross that point? Well, let's take what you said one step further. So let's let's imagine the the instance where somebody's born with birth defects that might be fatal without specific parts. Well, now we're talking about our now it's not even just can we replace the parts, but can we not only we replace the parts but replace them enough that they can actually have a normal life or a life that they wouldn't have had otherwise at all. And so that I think that gets into a strange conundrum too, because I do at some point believe we run into this. We're really trying to strive for immortality problem versus also trying just to give people a life in general. And when we're, when we're talking about like bionics and I know this is very related to prosthesis, but I don't think it's going to stay like that forever. And I think that Nick, I, th- I think the what you're envisioning and your kind of thought experiment is going to be more of a reality than people are probably ready for in this day and age or state. And I'm not gonna, I'm not saying that by the time I'm you know 45 or 50 that I'll be running around in a bionic, basically a bionic body. I don't think it'll happen that fast, but I do think it's a possibility. Um, or it with the advances in like think about the advances of combining this bionics with stem cells that you can potentially grow nerves. Well, now let's connect it to your old brain that is running a simulation of your old self and give you a body. I mean, this is, this is a lot of like weird, super hardcore sci-fi type stuff, but I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility with the things, the advances in science we're making from biology to prosthesis to any of that. I mean, it's, it, it all feels possible. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to get all philosophical on this today, man, but like so many of these stories just lend itself to that type of conversation, right? I mean, part of it is too, this story is very cool. I'm so happy that we are getting to that point where we can reach out and touch things with prosthetics and get that feedback. Uh, But I feel like there's a deeper conversation that we need to have about the way in which we interact with technology. And that's why we're going down these rabbit holes for anyone who's listening and wondering, like, just talk about the story. We're, we're tackling the bigger issues here. I think, or I'd like to think anyway, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> All yeah, right, Blake. Come hang on Slack and we'll talk about the story together. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's time for us to switch gears and get to it came from Reddit. You want to talk about some Reddit stories? Yes, please. All right. It came from, it came from, it came from Reddit. That's right. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about. So any subreddit is fair game as long as it pertains to the field of human factors and encourages discussion amongst the community. It's fair game. All right, Blake. So it looks like we got time for well, maybe two, but let's let's pick the best one. So we got uh, one, two, or three. Let's see here. I, I don't know. Uh, quick, quick. Quick programming note. I don't elevate these because I don't want somebody to go, oh, I wish you guys talked about that on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that smart? I don't know. Yeah. Doing my own horn here. All right. What do do you think? Uh, 
We got one, two, or three. Honestly, Nick, I, I feel like the one that brings a lot of value to potential listeners, especially if it's human factors related people, it might be number one, because this is something I, I didn't know off the top of my head would could even be an issue. Yeah. Okay. Let's go ahead and jump into it. So this one's titled, How Important is HFES Accreditation for a Master's Program? They go. Uh, this is r- written by, uh, what is any of this? And they go on to write, since this is such a he- unique degree, I've not found much regarding accreditation importance. I've been looking at Embry-Riddle uh, worldwide and campus and can't decide if both degrees will be treated equally. Any help will be greatly appreciated. So, Blake, I will have to admit, um, when I was looking for schools, this was not something high on my radar. Uh, but what about you? Were you looking for an HFES accredited university when you were looking for a master's in human factors? Nick, I will be bluntly honest with you. I did not know that that was even a thing. Yeah. So I know my school, uh, was definitely accredited by HFES and, um, I don't know See, so I have, uh, was yours first off? Was yours accredited? I'm looking right now. I'm assuming it was, but I don't, I don't want to say yes and be wrong. Right. Um, so I, it's, it's, I hope yours wasn't because then we have two different points of view on this uh, because it's very easy for someone to take the perspective of you have it and it's very easy to write it off like I didn't need it. But I'd be curious, right? Like if 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 you rose from a different cloth, and uh, and you didn't have it, and sort of talk about our experiences and and go at it from that route. But I mean, from the general consensus on this Reddit post, it doesn't look like it's super important. Um, uh, you know, people are saying you know it makes it a little bit easier, um, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I'm not really sure either. I mean, the only thing that I know for sure, and again, I don't know if this is related or this is typically what all, you know, campuses have, but we definitely had like student chapters of HWS on our campus. I mean, I was president of it at one point. Um, I know that you can find, I know that the first time I ever came across you know, CSULB's master's program was through HFES. So I'm assuming it is accredited. I can't find anything on the website that is blatantly telling me it is. Um, but, you know, it's it's a really interesting question because I know when we when you think about getting just a bachelor's degree or it was something I was concerned about getting a bachelor's degree, right? Like I wanted to make sure I went to a school that was accredited. So when I got out, at least my degree definitely counted right. for something. And I know some people or some friends of mine that went to schools that, lost accreditation as they were, you know, trying to graduate. So what it was a big problem, whether their degree was going to be recognized or not outside of school. Um, I'm, I'm not sure in this case, if it's something to be completely worried about, uh, because I know, I know a colleague of yours went to Embry riddle and a good friend of mine that we've had on the show, Joe Ott, he's, he has a human factors background from Embry riddle as well. Uh, so I, and I'm, pretty sure that his experience it was accredited or accredited but I, I think this is getting at what's going on in the worldwide campus maybe something on the web versus physical in person in florida that could be now let me break this down one step further i'm going to go out on a limb here and say it absolutely doesn't matter one bit and reason being is because if i were hiring a person 
and I were to look at their resume, it's not like, obviously some universities carry a little bit more clout than others. Uh, but honestly, what I'm looking for is who did you work with? What types of projects did you work on? And how eloquently can you speak about your role on those projects? Those are the main factors that I'm looking for when looking to hire somebody, right? And quick little plug, speaking of hiring, I created a little place on the Slack last week for job opportunities. So if you know of any opportunities uh, or are hiring yourself, jump in the Slack, um, send a message to some of the people on there. It's a great way to make connections. And if you're also looking for a job, jump in there. You never know what you might find. So, But yeah, I mean, those are the things that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for an, an accreditation from this specific university. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say definitively, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I feel like the only time you could ever run into a snag, and it is very, very unlikely, is getting your first job out, out of school. Yeah. If somebody happened to, we're talking about a master's program, you've done research, you can talk about your backgrounds. I would say that even if- Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Did you like them? Did you hate them? Let us know if you have any sort of our social media. Join the discussion on our Slack, like I said. You can find that link in our show notes or on gmail.com if you're one of those shy folks that doesn't want their comment being seen on the internet because employers look at that voicemails, just do it. Uh, you can also support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. Wherever you can get podcasts for free, you can find us there. And if they want to talk about putting their brain in a vat and hooking up two electrodes. At Don't Panic UX on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Just let me know you're a fan of the show, and I'll be happy to add you. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast this week. Until next time, it depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.